Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. This morning's teaching text is going to be from the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 16. It'll be on the screen. Chapter 16, starting in verse 7, it says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we won't sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up. And went to Rama. This is God's word. <clears throat> hey, good morning. Good to, good to be with you all. Uh, we are in this summer sermon series that we've been calling The Story of God. And one of the significant questions that we've really trying, been trying to ask this summer has, has been this. Uh, what, what's the Bible about? What is the entire Bible about? Uh, so you, you see on the screen, we're kind of progressing through the entire biblical narrative, and some have come to the Bible, and, and they've come to the conclusion the Bible is basically about us and what we have to do. The Bible's basically about us and what we have to do. Um, my hope, my prayer this summer is that we would see that the Bible is much more beautiful, much more compelling than that, that the Bible's not about us and what we must do, but the Bible's actually about Jesus and what he has done. That, that's what the Bible is about. So this entire summer, our, our goal is to tra- traverse through the entire narrative and see and savor Jesus on every single page as God's written this one redemptive story that points to Jesus as the Redeemer. Uh, so this, this morning, we kind of arrive at this milestone in, in week eight where uh, Israel has this transitional period, uh, transitioning from the leadership of the judges to the establishment of the monarchy in the Old Testament people of God. So we're talking about the kings, the kings. Uh, so this morning, just to kind of lay it before you, we, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, th- this narrative kind of goes through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, which all chronologically follow the books of Joshua and Judges that we looked at last week. So uh, I, he- I heard a preacher a few weeks ago make, make the joke, hey, I'm sorry about the length of this sermon. I didn't have time to write a short one. And that's kind of how I feel this morning. So sorry about the length of the sermon. I didn't have time to write a short one. This might be a little longer than the last few weeks, but I'll try to get through it, try to stay engaging, and, uh, and I hope you can stay with me. So what I first want to do is walk through the broad narrative, what happens 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then ask the question: What do we see? What is God showing us about Himself and about how we can relate to Him? So, really quick flyby. I'm gonna throw some maps on the screen. Hopefully, you can stay with me. So, last week we looked at the Book of Joshua. I have a map of this. Joshua is significant because it's this moment when God gives His people through Joshua's leadership uh, the land that He promised to them. And so what we see in this first map and you see in the book of, of Joshua is that uh, the people of God, Israel, enter into the promised land. And the second half of the book of Joshua is all about Joshua distributing the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joshua closes as a book and, and everything looks pretty good. You're like, okay, Israel now has a home. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a place where the people are dwelling and it looks pretty great. Joshua ends pretty optimistically. And then you flip the page, you get to the book of Judges and Judges does not end optimistically if you've ever read it. Uh, the last verse of the book of Judges is this. It's chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. Eugene Peterson translates the Bible. He says, people did whatever they felt like doing. There's no authority ruling over God's people, so everyone becomes their own authority. Kind of sounds like the mantras of our day. You're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. Hey, be true to yourself. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Be true to yourself. So what we see in Judges is this on the screen. This is not a picture of utopia where everybody's doing as they see fit and everybody's getting along and it's beautiful. No, Josh, like Judges is straight up brutal. It's a straight up brutal book. The final chapters of Judges are borderline like rated R literature. It's like hard to get through because of the wickedness that's happening in Israel. It's a mess. So what we see as Judges comes to a close and Samuel comes to an open, which chronologically follows Judges, is, is kind of a direct answer to this last verse. There's no king in Israel. It's, it's crazy, it's wild, everyone's doing whatever they want. So what we see in 1 Samuel is that Samuel, who is the last of the Judges and also is a prophet, uh, has this moment where Israel comes to Samuel and here's what Israel, the people of Israel, say to Samuel. They say, no, Samuel, no, should be on the, on the screen. Uh, no, Samuel, we're not going to listen to you. We want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. So, so this is significant because um, what's happening here is, is this reality where uh, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. The, the way that God had set things up was that he would be their God uh, and they would be his people and that he would give them a land and that they would be a light to the nations, that, that Israel would bless the other nations. But, but what happened here is instead of the nations learning from Israel, Israel learns from the nations. They reject their identity and they ask for a king to be like the other nations. What they're saying here to Samuel is, hey, Samuel, we don't want to be Israel anymore. We want a king like the other nations. We're not cool with God being our king. Give us a human king so we can look like everybody else. It's a rejection of identity. So what happens next is God in his sovereignty gives them a king. He gives them what they asked for. And a man named Saul is established as the first king of Israel. Following Saul in First and Second Samuel, we see the life of David. David is the second king of Israel. So I have another map. It shows what the kingdom of Israel looked like under Saul and David's leadership, as well as Solomon's leadership, uh, the son of David. You see kind of the expansion that happens in Israel. And then kind of a spark notes version, 2 Samuel comes to a close as David's life comes to a close. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles go on to tell the rest of the story of the monarchy, the, the kings of Israel that come. And there are 40 of them 
that succeed David. And just real quickly, let me tell you how bad it went. Here's how it goes. Uh, King Solomon's son takes the throne, and because of his ungodly and terrible leadership, God splits the nation of Israel into two. So I have another picture of this. Uh, Israel is split into two, and you now have the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the people of God are disunified. There's fighting and there's strife. There's, there's amnesty between them, and this leaves God's people susceptible to attacks from opposing nations, and, and that's exactly what happens. And so on the, on the final picture of a map here, what I have is the, the path of the exile. In 740 BC, the Assyrians come and they take over Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, and lead the people of Israel to captivity. That's the purple arrow. And then uh, you'll see with the other arrow there, in 598 BC, the Babylonians take over Judah, destroy the temple, and lead the people of Judah to captivity. So there you go. That's, that's the era of the kings. Um, so there's a ton here. We walk through it all. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks unpacking all the treasure God has for us in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. I wish we had time for that. But this morning, all I want to do is zoom into specifically 1 Samuel and, uh, and, and identify something. Uh, there's, there's a guy named Tim Mackey who leads this thing called the Bible Project. We've talked about the Bible Project before. And Tim Mackey, who's a Hebrew scholar, makes the compelling argument that in all reality, First and Second Samuel is just one big leadership case study between King Saul and King David. It's just like a leadership case study between these two first kings. And, and that's where I want to go this morning. And, and the reason I want to go there is because of this. Uh, to some degree, th- this will apply to all of us. You see, every follower of Jesus is called to lead and to leverage their life to point to his ultimate leadership. Now, it'll look different for some of us. We're all going to be called to lead in different capacities. Some of us maybe will be called to lead in our families. Some of us will be called to maybe lead in our workplaces. But every Christian is called to make disciples, which demands leadership. <laughs> that demands leadership. So we're going to look at First and Second Samuel a little bit and identify what God says about leadership and kind of look at the case study between Saul and David. So we're going to see three things this morning. Uh, we're going to see the leadership gap. We're going to see the essence of leadership, and then we're going to see the leader we all truly need. Okay? Laying my cards on the table. Leadership gap, the essence of leadership, the leader we truly need. So, number one, the leadership gap. We'll make our way through this. The Bible, from beginning to end, makes the case that this is a timeless truth about human life. The, The timeless truth about human life is this. We all need to be led. We all need to be led. Human beings need to be led. We actually desperately need authority outside of ourselves. Without it, chaos ensues. You ever been in a group project at school and like nobody takes up leadership? Everybody's kind of like, you take lead. No, you take lead. No, I'm not doing it. You do it. It's chaos, right? The project sucks. When, out, when there's no leadership, chaos ensues. Um, what, what's difficult about this, when we come up against this reality that we all need to be led, what's difficult is that the statistics and our personal experience are showing that more than ever, we are skeptical of external authority. We're skeptical of external authority. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, he writes and says this. I'm just going to quote him. From elementary school through graduate school, Western educators teach us to question authority. The authority of, he's going to rattle these all off, 
The church because it silenced Galileo, the king because he stole his power from the people, the Bible because of its alleged contradictions, the majority because of its tyrannies, men because of abuse, science because of paradigm shifts, philosophy because of language games, language because of deconstruction, the market because the rich just get richer, religious leaders because of drink the Kool-Aid, politicians because of follow the money, the media because of bias, and the police because of brutality. The list goes on. I could read more. We're taught to question authority, to be skeptical of authority. And part of this questioning, hear me clearly, is absolutely warranted. It's absolutely warranted. We've seen the tragic and grievous abuses of authority and leadership. Maybe even some of us have been victims of it. And that is, that is terrible. But all throughout the Bible, we see that God designed us to submit to an authority outside of ourselves. We need to be led. And not just any authority, but his authority. So you flip to page one of the Bible, and what do you see in page one of the Bible? You see an invitation from God that says, trust me. Let me be your authority. I know what's better for you than you know for yourself. Trust me. Submit to my authority, because I'm good. Just like three-year-olds, a toddler, just like three-year-olds need loving authority from their 30-year-old parents who are 10 times their age, God designed us to need his good leadership, his good authority. We need external protection, direction, wisdom, guidance, training, and provision. No human is strong enough, wise enough, capable enough to escape this. We need to be led, and God wired us this way. And and the fact of the matter is when we see humans in the Bible submit to God's authority, we actually see human flourishing, don't we? We see human flourishing, But as we've gone through the story of God so far, and I think as we look into our own world, we go, where's the flourishing at? Where's the flourishing? Maybe I see some glimpses of it, but as I look around, all I see is brokenness, heartache, destruction, and death. There's a gap, right? There's a leadership gap. The Bible says this gap, this chaos, this leadership vacuum exists because of sin. The Bible diagnoses this gap as caused by sin. You see, from Genesis 3 on, we've seen it. Sin says, no thanks, God. I'd like to be my own leader. I'd like to have your authority, but get you out of here. Thanks very much, God. The source of all of our issues, personally and corporately, as the human race, is the leadership gap that we've created by rejecting God's authority. It's sin. It's sin. So I'm going to press on us. The cultural issue of us questioning authority and being skeptical of authority is not so much of a cultural problem, I think. It's more of a sin problem. It's more of a sin problem. See, it's not that we have a problem with authority. We actually love authority. We, we love authority so long as it belongs to us and not someone else, right? So there's a leadership gap. But, but the last thing I'll say is this. I think in this gap existing, every human being, no matter where you come from, feels the dissonance. On the one hand, sin has us resistant to any and all kinds of external authority. And sin blinds us to think that we know what's best for ourselves. But, but on the other hand, I think if we're honest, we feel deep down this longing inside of us. A, a longing for a good, loving, wise leader to give us what we know we deeply need. I was thinking about this this week and wondering, is this why superhero movies are so popular right now? Because in a superhero movie, you have this reality where some otherworldly, 
like good, wise, powerful leader comes in and rescues the human race. We long for that. But on the other hand, we're resistant to it because sin has ourselves be our own authority. There's this leadership gap. But what's so interesting and so great about what we've seen so far in this series, the story of God, is that we've seen just about every week that that God hasn't left us in this leadership gap. God doesn't peace out and say, okay, you rejected me, I'm done. Good night, goodbye. (laughs) It seems like no matter how many times his people rebel and reject him, God graciously steps in to make another invitation to say, trust me. Trust me. I know you rejected me back there, but trust me. That's, That's grace. And the way God so often does this is by establishing human leaders who are meant to be reflections of God's leadership. It's, it's meant to be godly leadership. It's a reflection of his leadership. This is his invitation to Abraham, his invitation to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua, the judges, and eventually the kings. So there's a leadership gap, but God graciously steps in to invite us to fill that gap through his leadership and through establishing humans as leaders who are an extension of his leadership. So, so that kind of begs the question, okay, we think about human leadership that God establishes. How do we define good human leadership? What is the essence of good leadership, number two? The essence of good leadership. Uh, some of you may know this. In 1960, uh, there, there was a turning point for American history. 1960 marked the first uh, presidential election that was televised nationally. I don't know if you know that. Uh, for the first time in history, the two primary candidates, uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, debated on live television. You can go look up the footage of this. Um, and, and most agree, most historians agree that while it wasn't everything, the difference between Kennedy and Nixon's physical appearance as they debated on live national television played a role for most Americans in the voting booth. Okay? So I don't, I don't know if you know this, uh, uh, Kennedy, from what historians say, Kennedy won because he appeared younger and more attractive than Nixon, just straight up. That, that, was, that was just like part of the gig. Um, contrast this to 100 years prior in 1860, when Abraham Lincoln ran as president against Stephen A. Douglas. No such thing as TV. Photography existed at that, at that point, but there was no way to export photography to the masses. So, so get this, if an average American saw Abraham Lincoln walking down the street, no clue who he was. I, I, don't, know who, I don't know what Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln looks like. So the question is, how then did Americans vote? Well, the way that Americans voted was this. Each time Lincoln and Douglas debated, there would be somebody in the room taking notes and transcribing everything that they said. That transcription would then be printed to the newspaper, and that newspaper would be published to every American citizen in the country. In 1860, Americans voted not based on their appearance, but based on these men's ideas. In this, we see some parallels about leadership in God's economy in 1 and 2 Samuel. Here's the parallel. In chapter 16, as we read at the beginning, Saul had been king for a few chapters, but it's not gone well. Saul repeatedly disobeyed God, repeatedly rejected God's commands, and repeatedly rebelled against God's true kingship. And in chapter 15, God comes to Saul and says, Saul, I'm done with you, bro. I'm done with you. I reject you as king. I'm picking another guy to be king. So in chapter 16, God comes to Samuel, again, the prophet, the judge, says, Samuel, my brother, there's a man 
in Bethlehem, a little town called Bethlehem, named Jesse. And among Jesse's sons, he has eight sons, I see a guy who's fit to be king. So go check it out, Samuel. Samuel's like, all right. So he goes to Bethlehem, pulls up at Jesse's house. And he says, Jesse, get all your sons. Have them stand in line. That's what we read. So Jesse's sons stand in line. And Eliab, the oldest, Jesse's oldest son, seems like the clear winner to Samuel. Okay, one of these guys is fit to be king. That's what God told me. Uh, Eliab seems like the clear winner. Eliab's tall. He's physically impressive. Um, and, and if somebody was tall and physically impressive, that meant a lot for kings who would go to battle with a sword. If you were taller and you held a sword, you'd have a significant advantage over your opponents. And so Samuel seems like, okay, Eliab's got to be the guy. He's the oldest son. He's the tallest. He's the most physically impressive. But then verse 7, kind of the hinge point of this entire book. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. See, friends, we judge people on the basis of their external appearance, don't we? How young or old are they? How physically attractive are they? How physically impressive are they? Are they small or are they big? We think beauty is all about the outside, and therefore we judge based on it. And that's 1960. I'm not saying Kennedy wasn't a good president in other regards, but that's 1960. We judge on the basis of external appearance. But God says, no, 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 no. It's not how I do it. God says, true beauty has nothing to do with what someone looks like. Because get this, all that fades away. If you're strong, guess what? You're gonna get weak. You're gonna get old and weak. If you are physically attractive, we're all gonna get old and ugly someday. It's the fact of the matter. We're all getting older. We're all getting more wrinkles. We're gonna begin to lose our physical strength, our, our physical attractiveness. True beauty, beauty that lasts, is about character. What's in here? Virtue, character. So, so the thing we see is this. Good, godly leadership is about character, not competency. It's about character, not competency. It's not that competency is unimportant, right? There have been great leaders throughout history who have been very competent. But if competency isn't built on the platform of good character, then someone's leadership is undermined. It's eroded. Uh, a CEO of a great uh, Fortune 500 business might be a great organizational strategist. But if that CEO is greedy and steps on his own employees to get more of what he wants, money, then guess what? His greed is going to undermine all of his competence. Nobody's going to want to follow him. Nobody's going to want to work for him. Um, to, to even shine a little bit of a light into my own heart and my own life, uh, the New Testament in the Bible lists out a lengthy and thorough list of qualifications for elders and overseers. But, and, and our kind of reading and context of that is uh, taking that as to apply to elders and pastors. And so I go to the New Testament, and I see these lengthy lists of qualifications for elders and overseers, and there's 18 mentioned in the pastoral epistles. You know how many of those 18 are competencies? There's one. There's actually one. I don't know if I, I stumped any of that with that. But th there's one, but it's not even impressive. It's just able to teach. Lucky for me, it's not good at teaching. It's just able to teach. Can, can, you, just get, can you just get the, gut, the job done? But, but 17 out of 18 are all about character. It's above reproach. Are, is that person above reproach? 
Are they not controlled by alcohol? Are they not quarrelsome? Are they self-controlled? Are they well thought of by outsiders? Those are all about character. Nothing to do with competency. So I'll say it clearly. Frankly, friends, leadership isn't about charisma or whoever's the loudest person in the room or whoever's got the most influence with the largest group of people. It's not about the title you have either. Titles mean nothing if you don't have character underneath it. First and foremost, it's about character. And this is where I gotta go back a little bit to the first point that we looked at. This, this is why God himself is our definitive marker of what good authority looks like. God has no character flaws. God has no character flaws. He's perfectly holy. He, he's not a little bit self-absorbed. So most of the time he acts with our best interest in mind, but sometimes he gets prideful and he acts with his own interest in mind. No, God is not self-absorbed whatsoever. He's perfect. He's perfectly and utterly holy. And if you have someone who is utterly and perfectly holy, then you have someone who is completely trustworthy. Don't you? You can trust someone if they're perfect, that they'll never lead out of pride, arrogance, or insecurity. That's God. Which means, I'm going to draw the connection, which means the seedbed for good character is humility. The seedbed for good character is humility. Recognizing that we are not God. Recognizing that we are not perfect. Recognizing that we are not utterly holy. And recognizing that therefore we will never be perfect leaders because we are tainted and infected with sin. So we come to realize great leadership is just about following. (laughs) Our leadership is supposed to just be about pointing to his leadership. Great leaders are just great followers. Pointing to his leadership, he who's ultimately trustworthy and perfect. So the key distinction between King David and King Saul was humility. It was humility. So I'm not gonna get into it too much, but if if you read the account, Saul was filled with pride. So when Saul is confronted with his sin, he makes excuses. He makes excuses. He, he blames the people he leads. How, how terrible is that? Have you ever like, talked to a manager and they blame the people that are employed below them? That's terrible leadership. <laughs> Saul makes excuses and he blames the people he leads. He even says, well, well I kind of thought better than God. There's this moment where uh, he sacrifices and builds an altar to God and God didn't ask him to do that. Samuel's like, what are you doing, bro? You disobeyed God. And he's like, well, I thought I knew better than God. He's like, well, there's your problem. You thought you knew better than God, Saul. You see, pride stunts character development and growth in godliness because if you're proud, you will never take ownership for your sin. You always say the problem with the world is their sin out there, never me. The problem in this relationship is their sin, not mine. You'll get self-righteous about your own behavior and it will more and more blind you to the pride that keeps growing in you. And here's the darkest part. When you're proud and you never recognize your own sin, you will never repent. And you'll never experience God's grace that transforms. Saul was a terrible leader because he was proud. And therefore, his leadership wasn't about the people he was supposed to lead at all. His leadership was about himself. It was about himself. On on the reverse side, we'll look at this quickly. Look at at how C.S. Lewis defines humility. Like true gospel rot, Holy Spirit empowered humility. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Do not imagine that if you meet, oh, 
should be on the screen. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be sort of a greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you, uh, telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. So he's talking about false humility. Oh, I'm a nobody. I'm small. I'm not, I'm not significant. He says real humility looks like this. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility at all. He will not be thinking about himself at all. C.S. Lewis says, true humility is not thinking less about yourself. I'm the worst. That's, that's false humility. He says, true humility is thinking about yourself less. This is the essence of great leadership. And to summarize, there's a leadership guru named Eric Geiger, and he wrote a pretty thick book all about leadership. Eric Geiger says this. He says, true leaders are servants who die to themselves so others may flourish. Interesting. That sounds a lot like number three, the true leader that we all need. The leader we truly need. Number three, the leader we truly need. So to conclude here, um, King David, he, he ends up getting this whole king thing partially right. So Saul kind of has this trajectory where he rises to the top and has this tragic downfall. Um, and, and kind of part, part of the same is true about David. Uh, out of the 42 kings of Israel, only three are painted in a positive light. So three out of 42, not great. Um, and, and have character that leads to flourishing for God's people. And, and David is one of those in part. But, but if you know the story of King David... You'll know that for all the great victories, all the great sacrificial moments where he puts his people above him, he, uh, like Saul, has a tragic downfall as well. And maybe one of the the worst uh, in all the figures in scripture. So to summarize, what you see in 2 Samuel is this. The king who was the man after God's own heart. We've all heard that about David, right? The man after God's own heart. The king who was the man after God's own heart uses his authority as king to commit adultery, to murder that woman's husband, and then to lie to cover it all up. It's tragic. It's it's an abuse of authority. He uses his authority for his own gain, for his selfish pleasure, at the expense of the dignity and the life of others. It's absolutely tragic. So so in the end, we see that David and Saul were very much alike. Uh, Both kings were sinners. Both leaders were sinners. But... But only David was a repenter. Only David was a repenter. David is confronted with this moment of grievous sin. And and David's humility is on full display. You can read about it in Psalm 51. God gives an up close and personal uh, insight to David's heart. David breaks down and we see that David says, against you, O Lord, only I have sinned. David hates his sin when he sees uh, the, the grief that it causes God. But David also repents. In repentance and humility, God offers David grace. And, and while he still faces the consequences of his sin, God forgives and rescues David. That's the difference between Saul and David. Both men were sinners. Only David was a repenter. Um, there's this thing called the Westminster uh, catech- Catechism. 
and uh, it's, it's really old, it's kind of hard to read, but uh, essentially it was this small book that you could give to families um, so that you could actually train and raise your kids in the ways of Christian Orthodox faith. And there's this little um, truth, this little nugget that I pulled out from the Westminster Catechism of Faith. And it says this, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So that's kind of weird language. It's saying this, there's no such thing as a small sin. Like all sin is, is offensive to a holy God and therefore worthy of damnation. God's that holy. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. The only reason, friends, that there's hope for those who truly repent is because David's kingship points to a better, truer king who would come from the line of David generations later. See, David grew up as a shepherd boy who sacrificed his time and his safety to protect his father's sheep. Jesus, the king we truly long for and the king we truly need, didn't just sacrifice his time and his safety for his father's sheep, but he laid his life down for his father's sheep on the cross, his people. He climbed on the cross to bear our sin in full so that if we truly repent, he makes our death his death and offers us life. The damnation that was meant for us goes to Jesus on the cross so that we can experience life and freedom. So friends, Jesus is the great shepherd king that we long for, who loves us so dearly that he rescued us from sin that reigned and ruled our hearts that he might become the king of our hearts. So when you know his kingship, when you know and you have the love of the leader that we all truly need, he gives you the resource and the power to love and lead others the way that he's loved and led you. So, so this morning we see that First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, they're all about Jesus, saying we long for a better, truer shepherd king who will come and rescue us and lead us into green pastures forever. Jesus does that. So this morning, may we reflect on his great love for us the way he's led us. Let's pray together.